success begets success, right? People come here and they they see Larry and Sergey and they see Zuckerberg and now they see Ben Silverman and they're like, why not me? I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road, a weekly podcast about venture capital in Silicon Valley. This week, I sit down with John Vrionis of Unusual Ventures. The first question for John is natural enough. What's unusual about Unusual Ventures? So I have to be honest, we didn't, uh, it wasn't the original name. It wasn't until we started telling people how we thought about building the firm that their feedback, they kept saying, hey, John, that's really unusual. We haven't heard a venture capitalist talk like that, that we kind of fell in love with the name. Uh, I think I got to ask, what was the original name? Uh, Integrity Ventures. Oh, that's so not as good. It, it's it's sort of boring, and um, literally, it was just the folder I had in my home computer as I was thinking about you know this whole idea. Then, when I talked to a few people, uh, particularly my co-founder you know, Joe T, the founder of App Dynamics, he said, "John, that's one of those words that it'd be nice if people call us that, but you never want to be calling yourself that. It's a bit like humble. It just comes off a little weird. So, unusual has been a lot more fun." And every time we, we talk about what we're doing and people say, but venture capitalists don't do that, we say, oh, but we get to, we're unusual. Okay, and what's they, the unusual part? Chuckle. Well, there's really four things. Um, so the, the genesis of the, of the whole idea was that the market in venture capital has changed a lot in 10 years. Um, not just there's a television show about Silicon Valley, uh, but that a lot of the way the venture capital firms were originally set up was to help entrepreneurs at the most difficult stage, which is the beginning. Uh, and what you've seen happen over the last 10 years is a lot of the name brand firms uh, have gotten quite large in terms of the amount of money that they manage, which inevitably means that they focus on writing bigger investment checks. And there's less interest in spending a lot of time where they invest two, three, five million dollars when they've got billions of dollars to invest. And they'd more likely spend the time on the 50 or 100 million dollar checks. And so what that has meant for entrepreneurs is here they are at the hardest phase of the journey. And when they need the most help, they're not getting the time and attention. So we said, hey, look. Let's go back to what venture capital was originally designed to be, which was that early stage, pre-proof of the idea working investment idea. Uh, and so we, we said, okay, well, what do entrepreneurs really need? Instead of just money, which is nice, they also need real help at this stage of the journey. Um, and my co-founder, as an experienced entrepreneur, said, well, there's three things that every entrepreneur needs desperately at the beginning. They need help with hiring. Turns out recruiting is pretty difficult, especially in the Valley today. They need help with telling their story. They're often technologists or product people who love to talk about how something works, but not why it matters. And they always need help with sales. It's not usually the background they have. And so talking to more customers, to more prospects, that's, that's something they always need to learn. And so we could accelerate those three things and really get their idea to proof much faster than we thought anybody else was doing. So I originally came up with this concept of, oh, we'll invest, we'll help in this way. Um, and people said, well, that sounds good. Um, what else would you change about venture capital, John? I said, well, I've been doing this a while, and uh, I guess a few other things. Number one, I'd, I'd, I'd really want the firm to make money for causes that were inspirational. Uh, at, at, at the former firm I worked, uh, we had a number of LPs that were sovereign wealth or 
um, you know, frankly, wealthy families. And it, it's not as inspirational uh, when the wealth creation you're generating goes back to someone who buys another big house or a Ferrari or some fancy, you know, uh, material thing. Instead, if you're working for children's hospitals or financial aid programs uh, or re medical research, we felt like not only would the team here like it uh, and be inspired by it, but our entrepreneurs would care too. And that's proven to be very true. Um, the second thing is I have three daughters. Uh, my co-founder has a daughter and, and God help them if they want to be venture capitalists someday. But we felt uh, there shouldn't be a question about uh, do women belong in venture capital firms? They should be very successful and welcome. So half the team here is women. Um, we started that way. We'll never go below it. Uh, no compromises. Um, and the third thing was, you know, I, the Catholic in me, we, we learn in life through suffering was this thing that I sort of grew up with. I think entrepreneurship is the same. So the whole notion of academy, the thing we actually teach to our entrepreneurs, it's really a set of very interactive engagements where we take these famous people who share their experience as seed stage entrepreneurs and how they overcame a very specific problem. And we created a bunch of interactive workshops we call the academy that the entrepreneurs get to go through where they hear from someone famous and what they did and then they have to apply it to their own idea and then teach it to people. So it's a see one, do one, teach one model. And you can tell pretty quickly if someone understands something when they have to teach it to you. And so the whole point of the academy is to be exposed to how successful entrepreneurs overcame certain key obstacles, take your own idea, suffer through that process and then have to teach it to people. I think people will be surprised sometimes to hear that venture capitalists spend a great deal of time instructing the firms that they've invested money in because there's that temptation to, as a young team, pitching venture capital to say, oh, yeah, we totally know what we're doing. We are 100% on this. We are completely confident when the answer is no, we don't know what we're doing. We have a good idea. We have a good team, but we need some help. It's interesting that you say that because some of the investors that we pitch, right? So venture capitalists have investors too, right? We call them limited partners. When we told them about the academy idea, some of them asked, yeah, but do the founders really think they need help? And I said, you know, it's interesting. The founders we want to work with have the humility to know that they need help. Nobody's got it all figured out. I don't care how old you are, how accomplished, everybody's trying to figure something out. And if you don't have that humility to want to learn from people who have been down the path ahead of you in some way, I don't actually think you can build a successful company. I think people won't follow those people forever. You, to be a great leader, you need to be humble. And so the whole design of Unusual and the Academy and the services we do, they require that you as an entrepreneur know that you need help. Now you can be dogmatic and enthusiastic and believe that your vision is right. That doesn't mean you don't need help to getting there along the way. You were talking about the source of funds and sovereign wealth funds in particular. You wrote, it's time to bring out into the open the conversation about where Silicon Valley gets its money. More and more, that's been the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Yeah, there was a lot of interesting data published last year about how much of the kind of iconic companies, the IPOs you're reading about, how they had been funded by different sovereign wealth uh, and, and particularly from the Middle East and Saudi Arabia, just how large some of those mm -hmm. investments have been. And so people asked us a lot about that, not just about direct investment, but actually when we went to raise the fund. And you know, back to the inspiring causes and LPs that we wanted to have, we felt our entrepreneurs at a minimum deserve to know 
whose money you're investing and on whose behalf. And it's funny, Silicon Valley kind of has this culture of it's very opaque. They don't they don't talk about that. And, uh, you know, in the spirit of transparency, we felt like at a minimum, it should be very out in the open about where venture capitalists get their money. Uh, Joe T likes to say when he got involved as an entrepreneur, he thought it was just the venture capitalist money themselves. He thought these were just rich white guys who were investing in his company, only to find out later that no, the money actually comes from a lot of different sources. And so it wasn't an attempt to be judgmental about anything. Now, we personally are not comfortable with some of the, the stance that Saudi Arabia takes on women's issues. So it's not a good fit for unusual. Um, but it really, the macro point is there should be transparency at a minimum. People should understand where the money's coming from and where it goes. And I'm not necessarily asking you to call out specific countries or, or groups or, or whatnot, but there definitely is money out there that is not as pure and is not as, as say, a university endowment uh, that is being circulated in Silicon Valley. Yeah, and, and that's... Uh as you've seen, there's some interesting reporting being done by a lot of the major publications uh, as they try to get to the bottom of where that money origi mm -hmm. originates. Those are big funds, too. But it's not easy. Yeah. I mean, they, they, uh, they're clever if they want to mask kind of where that money comes from originally. And, uh, and again, in, in, a, in, a, in a tradition that just, I think, goes back 40 years from kind of the origination of venture capital as an industry, it just, it was, the practice was you don't share openly where that money comes from. As there's more sovereign wealth fund in Silicon Valley, uh, and I'm thinking of, for instance, uh, SoftBank is a good example of staggering sums uh, of money that's coming into Silicon Valley. Is that harmful to us in any way? I don't mean the source of it. I mean just the sheer amount of it. Uh, we always worry about a bubble, but is there too much money chasing too few ideas? You know, I think it's more of a shifting of where the value goes to, right? So what's happened with all of these large funds, you mentioned SoftBank, there are others, is that companies have stayed private much longer. So as whereas a company would get to 50, 75, 100 million dollars of revenue and consider an IPO, now you're seeing them get much bigger. And the losses, because they're not profitable, are being funded by these large private funds. Well, the values accreting to those funds while the companies are private in the success case. Whereas before, they would go to the public shareholders, the retail shareholders, as the company grew in value as a public company. And that's just because I think a lot of these big funds, they're chasing yield. The interest rates have been historically low for a while. They were looking at other asset classes and they saw that, wow, you could invest in a company at a billion or $2 billion valuation and it might be worth 10 just a few years down the road. So a five or 10 X on a hundred or $200 million check is pretty attractive. And that money used to be, that accretion in value used to go to the public investor, and now it's just gone back to these sovereign wealth funds. You've done very well for yourself. I was just Heptio and MuleSoft and Nimble Storage, Datastacks, uh, AppDynamics. How did you do so well? What, what, what overall arching theme is in that success? You know, I was really fortunate to work with smart entrepreneurs. Uh, it's a pet peeve and it's, it's, this isn't false humility, right? Like the, the entrepreneurs do all the work. I mean, I, I think I just been very, you know, fortunate 
uh, to be investing at a time where so much of the world's enterprise software has turned over. So when I first got it started, people would say, hey, John, it turns out that sector and timing really matter in this job. So if you look back over the last decade, we've gone through this historically significant transition period. People went from on-premise use of software to what people call SaaS or software as a service applications to now things like AWS and Azure and Google. I mean, just literally historically significant transitions, which means there's been opportunity for companies, new companies to be disruptive, right? So much of this depends on the macro economy and just the forces that are, you know, we joke, uh, we teach a little class where we say, you could have a yacht and no wind, you're not going anywhere. But you could have a dinghy in a hurricane and that sucker will get moving. So the market wins is the point. And in the last decade, you've seen just tremendous momentum and disruption available to new entrants. You've hit several things at just the right moment, which I think leads to the obvious question, what's the next thing? What's the next big opportunity? Yeah, I mean, I think we're actually in the midst, early innings, if you will, and use a baseball analogy, um, of this transition to cloud-based computing, right? It's uh, the amount of computer science graduates that are now graduating, it's an accelerating, it's, I mean, it's exponential. And now you have all of this computational power available to you at the swipe of a credit card. Whereas there's no more boxes to buy, there's no more infrastructure to put together. You just need to be a bright person with an idea and you can code up an application for, you know, not much, a few dollars, frank, frankly, and see if anybody actually wants to use it. So, you know, innovation is accelerating because the resources available are at everybody's fingertips, I mean, around the globe. Right. And so the way the Internet got built kind of in the 90s and you saw all these iconic companies get built on top of it in the, in the decade after, I feel like now we have Amazon, Azure, Google, and all of a sudden you're going to see completely rethought new applications used. And you introduce things like machine learning or artificial intelligence, which accelerate and improve the use of these applications. I mean, I, I couldn't be more excited about the decade ahead. There is this ability to move money around the world and to work from anywhere in the world. And now with AWS and whatnot, to have the power off in the cloud somewhere for your business. Yet I'm going to guess a vast majority of your investments uh, are within Santa Clara County or Northern California. Why is that? Oh, that's a great question. Um, why is there so much innovation in Silicon Valley? Why isn't everywhere Silicon Valley if the technology and the ability to move money and the ability for a workforce to work anywhere, why is Silicon Valley still Silicon Valley and not Peoria, Illinois? I think the main reason is acceptance of failure, the willingness to take risk and fail. Uh, in no way is that a penalty on your resume in Silicon Valley. Everywhere else in the world, I mean, practically speaking, people are a little bit more afraid of that. You know, they, they as Conan O'Brien once said, the white tuxedo, right? They don't want to get it dirty. I've heard so many stories of people from other countries who uh, maybe their families were successful and they don't want to be the failure in that family. Or conversely, maybe their family struggled and now they got a college degree and they can get a six-figure job for the first time in maybe the family's history they're not gonna take a $20,000 job in a company that might fail when they have that opportunity. Whereas you, people come to Silicon Valley to change the world, 
right? And they're completely willing to fall on their face in the pursuit of that dream. And the community, the whole culture, it supports it. It's like, oh, what's this company, uh, Uga what, on your resume? <laughs> ah, it didn't work. I had one of those too. No problem. It doesn't, it doesn't in any way create friction in getting the next job or starting the next company. And I think that is just idiosyncratic to the whole world. So that's why Silicon Valley is this just amazing place. And then success begets success, right? People come here and they, they see Larry and Sergey and they see Zuckerberg and now they see the, and they're Ben Silverman and they're like, why not me? You wrote, we are not interested in people who start a company with the primary goal of making money. That do you want to me to under, explain to you how venture capital works? <laughs> <laughs> you asked me that a few years ago when we talked about the fellowship that I ran. John is talking about an interview I did with him on my television show, Press Here, back in 2013. You're not taking part of the cut. No, absolutely not. It's you, a, you understand how venture capital works, right? A little, <laughs> little bit, yeah. Why? Why? That is the worst, making the same joke twice, even if it was six years ago. Ah, uh, well, I suppose I'm flattered John remembered it. Here's what I mean by that. I, I give pretty much every entrepreneur I know this book, Shoe Dog. So if you haven't read Shoe Dog, you should read Shoe Dog. Phil it's Knight. the story of Phil Knight yeah. and Nike. And there's an authenticity to the story, to his pursuit of changing the shoe industry. Not because he was des destined or you know, desired so greatly to be a millionaire or a billionaire or whatever he became. It was that he truly believed in that improving people's lives, right? I think regardless of the money, it's what energized him. And, and here's the thing, all startups go through really hard periods. It's just like life in general. We're all gonna have our ups and downs. You have to believe so much in the North Star that you're willing to work through the hardest of times. And if, it, if it's only money that ultimately drives you to do this, I don't think you survive, or nor does the team around you survive when you get through those inevitably most difficult periods. And so we talk about authentic or credible or just passionate entrepreneurs who just have to see the world in an improved state because of the thing that they're building, the company they're starting. That's what we're looking for. That's what I mean by that. If it's, hey, let's think about being an entrepreneur so that I can be a millionaire, that doesn't see people through the hardest of times. John Vrionis of Unusual Ventures. Next week on Sand Hill Road, Elizabeth Yin from Hustle Fund takes us behind the scenes as VC raised the sea, the capital. That's next week on Sand Hill Road. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes and at PressHereTV.com.